Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. I'm Hamish Johnston, and in this episode, I delve into the flourishing field of nonlinear optics with two experts. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you working in energy research, sensors, electrochemistry, or solid-state science and technology? Mark your calendar April 2nd to the 9th for the Electrochemical Society's Free the Science Week. You will have free access to world-renowned, highly peer-reviewed research in the ECS Digital Library on IOP Science, as ECS demonstrates their commitment to open science. Download research without a subscription and join ECS in accelerating science. Visit ecsdl.org. The field of nonlinear optics has been around for 60 years, and it's flourished over the past few decades thanks to breakthroughs in materials science and technology. To talk about nonlinear optics and its promising future, I'm joined down the line by two experts in the field. They are Eric Van Stryland at the College of Optics and Photonics at the University of Central Florida and Natalie Vermeulen at Brussels Photonics at the Free University of Brussels. Natalie, Eric, and colleagues have just published a paper in the Journal of Physics Photonics that looks at nonlinear optics since 2000. Hi, Natalie and Eric. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. So, Eric, first things first, what exactly is nonlinear optics? Yeah, that's always fun. I teach a, a class, and every time I use a couple of examples. So the first example is that of the photochromic sunglasses. I actually have a pair on now. These are the ones that when you walk outside, uh, they turn dark. The sunlight changes the absorptive properties of the glasses, making them turn dark. These are usually made from plastic, which is impregnated with an organic dye that changes in the sunlight. It's actually a ring opening uh, of the organic dye that makes them more absorptive. And then when you walk back inside, the thermal agitation makes that ring close again, and therefore they transmit again. Thus, the light has changed the optical absorption property of the material. This describes one of the most important nonlinearities, so-called nonlinear absorption. However, this is a very slow chemical process. We primarily study uh, in this and in the paper uh, nonlinear processes on a much faster time scale, nanosecond, picosecond, femtosecond, or even where you, it's so fast you can't measure it. We call that quasi-instantaneous, if you want. And it's not just glasses or plastic, but it's also semiconductors, dielectrics, and all sorts of different forms, like in fiber form. But interestingly, every nonlinear absorption process also gives rise to a change in the refractive index, maybe in a different wavelength, but it always happens. This is called nonlinear refraction. My example there is actually a mirage. The simplest such mirage is when you're driving down a blacktop road in a hot summer, you see what looks like water on the road, but as you drive up to it, it keeps going away from you. There, what happens is that the sun actually heats the road that heats the air just above it, which lowers the air's density and thus lowers the refractive index. 
And then you get total reflection of the glancing angle going from low to high index, just as you do in an optical fiber. Again, it's a light-induced change in an optical property, and that is the essence of what nonlinear optics is about. Most of our nonlinear optics deals with nonlinear absorption, nonlinear refraction, but you've also got nonlinear scattering, and also you can change the frequency or the color of light uh, with these high-intensity systems. So nonlinear optics entails the nonlinear interactions between light and matter, and they manifest themselves in all sorts of ways uh, like the color changing light. The nonlinear optics researchers aim at exploiting these effects for developing new optical devices. But these nonlinear actions actually occur sometimes as an unwanted side effect, and there's an example of that, and that's the Lawrence Livermore Laser Fusion Project. They had a major problem when they tried to turn up the energy with optical elements, and there are thousands of optical elements, lenses, mirrors, etc., that actually blow up because they started to absorb the laser energy. And this is called laser-induced damage. Laser-induced damage is actually the ultimate nonlinear phenomenon where a normally transparent material looks fine with relatively high input, but when you just turn the laser power up a tiny bit, the piece goes from transmitting to literally exploding. And in my labs, I've seen shattered glass fly across the room. Here there's a power or energy above which the material rapidly absorbs that energy to create the damage. The damage obviously takes energy, but it's actually the energy from the light beam itself. Here, for these highly transmissive optical elements, it's the, actually the optical electric field that gets so high that it actually strips the electrons off of the atoms. It's very similar to what happens, at least in Florida, with lightning here. And you get an AC electric field doing it from the laser as opposed to a DC field for lightning. And you actually, if you focus down into glass, you actually can see a spark inside the glass optical elements and you hear a little snap. And that's the thunder a tweeter as opposed to a woofer. And uh, it, you actually, in these little trinkets you see in, in the novelty stores, those are actually little damage sites in three making a three-dimensional matrix of, of spots were created by laser-induced damage. So when you see that lightning and you see that and hear that thunder, that's actually when the ionized electrons recombine with the atoms to give off a white light and the sound of thunder. And by a huge research effort at Lawrence Livermore and elsewhere, the optical elements were improved to make the threshold for this laser-induced damage much higher. And that's what allowed the recent announcement of optical break-even that's been in the news lately from Lawrence Livermore National Labs. That is, they now are able to create enough fusion energy that is equal to or greater than the optical energy that was put in. Natalie, maybe you want to follow up on this. Yeah, thanks, uh, Eric. So uh, maybe one of the remaining questions is, what is the physics behind this increased absorption, this nonlinear absorption inside the glass optical elements? Uh, well, in fact, this is still being studied. And in addition, as Eric already pointed out, nonlinear changes in absorption are also accompanied by nonlinear changes in refraction. For example, nonlinear to photon absorption can be accompanied by a shifting wavelength or by a self-focusing of the laser beam. And both of these are nonlinear refraction processes. Now, in the case of the laser fusion experiments, uh, the observed nonlinearities clearly were unwanted effects, but one can also use nonlinear optical effects for all kinds of practical applications. 
And so, Natalie, can you tell us a bit about these practical applications? What, what could you use nonlinear optics for? Well, a classical example is the green laser pointer. Now, the laser inside this device is, in fact, an infrared laser that emits radiation at a wavelength of 1,064 nanometers. And to convert the infrared laser light into green light, a nonlinear optical crystal is inserted inside uh, the laser beam. Typically, this is uh, KTP, which stands for potassium titanyl phosphate. And this KTP crystal uh, will then double the frequency of the laser light, or in other words, the laser wavelength is divided in two. So one goes from 1064 nanometers to 532 nanometers. And indeed, this corresponds to the green light that we observe at the, the output of a green laser pointer. Now, a more advanced application example of nonlinear optics is the use of so-called supercontinuum light generation for medical imaging. Supercontinuum generation is a nonlinear optical process that usually starts from a short, high-powered laser pulse. And so this laser pulse is incident on a transparent material. This can be, for example, an optical fiber. And then the laser pulse experiences all kinds of nonlinear optical effects inside the fiber, such as uh, spectral broadening due to so-called selfies modulation, and also wavelength conversion due to uh, four-wave mixing or stimulated Raman scattering. Now, all of these interactions are governed by the so-called uh, nonlinear Schrödinger equation. And the reason why we speak of supercontinuum generation is that the light that comes out of the optical fiber, that light will have a super broad spectrum. For example, it can cover all of the visible spectrum and even more than that. So it's really a super continuum of frequencies. And such a broad spectrum is useful for, for medical applications. For example, for optical coherence tomography or ECT. Now, what is OCT? Uh, this is a medical imaging technique that allows imaging the, the cross-section of, for example, the human eye or the skin. And it can do so with a very high resolution even on the micrometer scale. So it makes it possible to detect and visualize very small features, such as cancer tumors within the skin, for example. Well, let me uh, add just another uh, application. Uh, it's a very different application. It's called the all optical switch, which is a device where the propagation of light signals in the material is controlled by another light beam, the so-called control beam. These control light beams induce a nonlinear optical effect inside the material that changes the propagation of the other light beam. It induces a switching behavior. If you think of the photochromic sunglasses, uh, they can do this as well. In a sense, if you have a, a flashlight shining through the photochromic sunglasses, the sunglasses turn dark, it actually makes the, the flashlight turn darker as well. So that's a switch, but of course, that's not really all that useful. So all optical switching in Fibers using lasers can be done on, on extremely fast timescales. And in principle, they could greatly speed up telecommunication systems, which now rely on electronics to modulate the lasers. And those modulated laser signals are then transmitted via an optical fiber received by an electronic device, which tells them where to send the signal, and then retransmitted to the desired destination. If you replace those electrons by photons, to do the all optical switching, you don't have to do the electronic 
uh, measurement and then retransmission. And that could greatly speed up because optical devices can be modulated at terahertz frequencies as opposed to the perhaps 100 gigahertz that you can do with electrons. So uh, that gets rid of all the electronics in the middle. So Natalie, in your paper, you present the properties of a number of different materials with nonlinear optical properties. Can you give us a flavor of some of these materials and how these nonlinear properties arise? Well, let's start with the, the earliest studied material category, and that is the, the category of, of bulk materials, as we all know. Um, there are many data tables out there about nonlinear optical bulk materials, and well, these data tables in general were published before the year 2000. Nevertheless, over the past two decades, several new types of materials have emerged, uh, such as low-dimensional materials, Think about carbon nanotubes, about graphene, and also metamaterials. So in 2020, um, on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of nonlinear optics research, we thought, well, why don't we make new data tables that include those new material categories? But at the same time, we should also show the recent developments for the more established uh, material types, because in the end, these provide the fundamentals for the new materials. So in our final paper uh, in, in JFIS Photonics, we ended up with eight data tables. Uh, and these cover bulk materials, solvents, low-dimensional materials, metamaterials, on-chip waveguiding materials, fiber waveguiding materials, a whole list, <laughs> and also hybrid uh, waveguiding systems. Uh, these are systems where on-chip waveguides of fibers are combined with, for example, low-dimensional materials. And this is not all, uh, because these tables, they, they are focused on nonlinearities measured using optical wavelengths. But in addition to that, we also prepared a separate table for terahertz uh, nonlinearities. So... In fact, we had quite a broad scope in mind for this paper, and, and this also meant we needed a large team to do this work. In total, 22 nonlinear optics experts have uh, participated in this, and, and each of these 22 researchers, of course, has his or her own specific expertise on a specific material type. It would lead us probably too far to discuss the nonlinear optical physics of each material category separately, but there is one thing that they all have in common, and that is they all produce a mix of nonlinear effects. And it's really important to understand which is which. And, and Eric can uh, say a few more words about that. Well, let me just in particular look at the nonlinearity, the uh, so-called bound electronic nonlinear effect. Uh, this is a really ultra-fast phenomena where the speed is, is, is sub-femtosecond. So if you think of the electrons in atoms being charges on springs, and this is the classical model for describing atoms, this, when does the spring no longer obey Hooke's law, where the force goes like minus k times x, this extension? Well, when x, you can expand x plus x squared plus x cubed, if you add those extra terms, it's basically the spring becomes a nonlinear spring. And this actually can physically explain how you get second harmonics produced, uh, in, the, in the green laser pointer, for example. But it also can describe nonlinear absorption and nonlinear refraction from these higher order terms, just this spring. And it, since the electrons are very light, they can move very rapidly, and that's why the response time is so short. 
But besides this bound electron and nonlinearity effect, there are multiple other physical processes that can produce these nonlinear optical effects, even with free electrons where the spring is missing. So, Eric, you also write about best practice for performing and reporting nonlinear optical experiments. Can you describe a, a typical experiment and what sort of data it produces? <laughs> well, first of all, our purpose when listing the, these best practices for performing nonlinear optical experiments was to present a uniform overview on how to make these nonlinear measurements, how to analyze and report the obtained results. This way, researchers in the future will know uh, what is important when carrying out these measurements. This will facilitate the interpretation, comparison, and the practical use of the nonlinear optics data presented in future works. Hopefully, this will also speed up the development of new, efficient nonlinear optical materials that future engineers can use in various applications. And Natalie is going to follow this with answer to some of your other questions. Uh, yes, well, uh, indeed, it, it was quite a challenge to come up with these best practices. So what, what we did is we, we read hundreds of published papers on all kinds of uh, materials. And from those papers, we determined some, let's say, general rules that allow uh, to obtain high quality uh, data and, and useful nonlinear optical measurement data. So what do these uh, best practices entail? Um, well, first of all, the properties of the material itself are very important, obviously. So it, it should be known how the material was fabricated, uh, what kind of uh, chemical composition does the material have, and so on. It is also essential to, uh, to know the, the linear optical properties of the material, uh, such as the, the linear loss, the, the linear refractive index, and so forth. And then if we look at the, the actual nonlinear optical experiments, there the, the properties of the optical excitation that is used in those experiments are essential. And uh, these properties, uh, they include, uh, for example, the input irradiance. So this is the, the energy per unit area, per unit time. This is really a very important parameter. And, and you can only properly quantify the irradiance in case you know that also the area of the excitation beam. And that's not always so straightforward. Also, the, the pulse width of the excitation should be precisely known. Um, when referring again to the, the photochromic sunglasses that Eric was talking about, well, these typically need seconds to darken, but there are other materials out there that can darken much faster, even in a few femtoseconds. Irradiance and, and pulse width are just two examples of parameters that need to be known uh, for nonlinear optical experiments. And in fact, there are many more uh, parameters that, that, that you should quantify if you want to have uh, meaningful uh, nonlinear optical experimental results. And let me add on, on to this because I'd also like to mention the importance specifically of measuring the wavelength dependence of the nonlinear optical effect. So, with the advent of these broadly tunable sources over the past few years, nonlinear spectroscopy has become a much more easily accessible characterization tool. And the information it provides in terms of the wavelength effect wavelength dependence effect greatly helps in interpreting what physical process is involved in the measured nonlinear response. This gets us to an important point in the interpretation because it is often very difficult to make sense of a single nonlinear optical experiment performed on a material using a single pulse width, a single wavelength, etc. 
is important for understanding the nonlinear response to perform a number of parametric studies, meaning varying the pulse width, varying the wavelength, varying the focusing geometry as in a so-called Z-scan, where you scan the sample through the, the linear focal position, thus changing the irradiance. In addition to single-beam experiments, two-beam experiments are also important, these so-called pump probe experiments, when one beam has a higher radiance to induce the nonlinear changes in the optical properties of the material, and there's a weak probe beam that probes these changes. That way, for example, you can determine the temporal dependence of the nonlinear optical response, which is very important in the interpretation. Finally, to interpret these nonlinear responses in the material, it can also help to carry out a measurement on a known reference material, that is to simultaneously measure the nonlinear effect that you're using, whether you're using this particular methodology in a material that's well known. But in doing this, writing up this paper, we found out that uh, <laughs> in going through the literature, that sometimes these nonlinearities for so-called well-known materials, such as fused silica, are actually not as well known as we previously thought. So we need to be very careful in doing it. So what future uh, do you see for the development of new nonlinear materials and experiments? Is quantum optics a big future application, for example? Well, that's a very good question indeed. Um, we, we think that the future of, of nonlinear optics uh, is really intertwined with the future developments in material science and also in the fabrication technologies. Now, one thing is for sure, um, if we want to optimally exploit the advances in material science and fabrication, it is really important to have a, a clear and a solid view on the current state of the art of the nonlinear optical materials. So in that context, uh, with the data tables and the best practices in our paper, uh, we think we have contributed to, to such a solid foundation, uh, a foundation that, that will further facilitate and also standardize nonlinear optical research in the coming years and hopefully also in the coming decades. Now, in terms of big future applications, well, indeed, maybe quantum optics, uh, it, it's possible that quantum optics is one of them. Um, think about, for example, the, the nonlinear optical process of spontaneous parametric downconversion or SPDC. Uh, this SPDC process, what it does is it, it converts one high-energy photon into a pair of lower-energy photons. And simply put, if you detect only one of these two lower-energy photons, you know with certainty that the other photon is also out there, even without detecting it. This is the so-called heralding experiment, and, and this, in fact, simplifies the detection schemes needed for quantum applications. And in addition to that, every pair of photons generated by the SPDC process also carries information, for example, by means of their polarization state. And, and in this way, it is possible to, to use these photons as so-called quantum bits in quantum computing. Nevertheless, besides quantum optics, uh, we think there are also several other application domains to be considered for nonlinear optics, such as optical data, calm medicine, biophotonics, and even astronomy. So let me just add an absolutely opposite effect from the optical down conversion, and that's optical up conversion, where you take two, two low energy photons and make one of higher energy. 
Uh, and uh, thinking about this, you might even be able to use nonlinear optics for astronomy. Visible detectors are much better than infrared detectors for looking uh, for responsivity, et cetera, and getting quantum efficiency. If you want to look at stars, of course, the light's weak. And the Hubble shift means that the farther you look in, in, in space, the farther in the infrared, the light is coming. And so it's very difficult with these infrared detectors to get very high quantum efficiency. So if you could shine a laser beam onto the detector at the same time the starlight comes in and upconvert those star photons into the visible, you'd have a much better detector. Actually, this was first tried in 1973 with a fellow student of mine in Tucson. Uh, and it worked, but it was not practical at the time. Recent developments means that this may be practical in the future. So upconverting the IR radiation coming from the stars or galaxies in the, in the distance can achieve nearly unity conversion from the infrared to the visible for those photons, for those few photons that come in the infrared. You basically combine a photon from your laser with that starlight photon. So for the future development of telescopes, one might look at using this process that perhaps might let us look even farther back in time to the Big Bang, and that would be a lot of fun. Wow, that's a, that's a fascinating uh, number of, of applications, everything from astronomy to quantum computing. It looks like uh, nonlinear optics is set for uh, an amazing future. Um, now, the paper that Natalie and Eric have been mentioning is published in the Journal of Physics Photonics, and it's called Post-2000 Nonlinear Optical Materials and Measurements data tables, and best practices. And you can find it on the IOP Science website. Eric and Natalie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Earlier this year, the UK attempted to join the growing number of countries launching rockets into space from their own soil. On January 9th, a modified Boeing 747 took off from Spaceport Cornwall, carrying a 31-ton uncrewed rocket under its wing. Built by Virgin Orbit and called Launcher One, the rocket disengaged from the aircraft high over the Atlantic Ocean and successfully fired its first and second stage engines, starting its ascent to Earth orbit. However, mission engineers soon realized that something had gone wrong, and the rocket and its payload of nine satellites fell back to Earth. This week, Virgin Orbit announced that it was pausing operations because of funding problems in a move that could have consequences for Spaceport Cornwall. Writing in Physics World, Ben Skuse looks at the future of space launches in the UK. He points out that Cornwall is not the only spaceport in the country. There are two in Scotland that both aim to launch their first conventional rockets this year. Although the UK is a leader in the development of satellite technology, it has lagged behind some of its competitors when it comes to developing launch facilities. In his article, Skuse looks at the economic and technological arguments for spaceports and also examines the environmental impact of launches, both here on Earth 
and in space. You can find his article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, UK Spaceports, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Also new on the website is an article that looks at the latest developments in the ongoing saga of whether UK scientists will be able to take part in the European Union's Horizon Europe research program. Horizon Europe began in 2021, and it's the world's largest research and innovation funding program. Although the UK left the EU in 2020, it was set to join Horizon as an associate member. But then the UK threatened to pull out of an agreement with the EU over the status of Northern Ireland, and Horizon membership was put on hold. Last month, the Windsor Framework, agreed by the UK and the EU, offered a solution to the Northern Ireland problem. However, the framework has yet to be ratified by either party. On the Physics World website, the science writer Michael Allen has spoken to British scientists who say that it's essential that the country's Horizon membership is revived, despite mixed messages from UK politicians. You can read Michael's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Scientists Say UK Must Rejoin Horizon Europe to Bolster Science Superpower Claims. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. Thanks to Natalie Vermeulen and Eric Van Stryland for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester meets Charity Woodrum, an astrophysicist whose childhood dream of working for NASA was nearly derailed by a personal tragedy. Currently studying for a doctorate in galaxy quenching at the University of Arizona, using data from the James Webb Space Telescope. Her story is the subject of the film Space, Hope, and Charity. And that was directed by Sandy Cummings, who also joins Glester on the podcast. Now, you can find all the Physics World Stories podcasts on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.